Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychius, the brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So you have me again today. Um, Oh, thank you. Before we start, I thought um, in the spirit of Christmas, I I would um, uh, talk to you a little bit about a gift I want to give to you guys as a congregation and to Ryan. Um, I just feel like we rely on me too much for the whole British accent thing. So Ryan, there's an instant British accent breath spray that I have for you uh, later on. Um, by coincidence, I thought it was really cool because I know that um, <clears throat> sounding richer, sounding smarter, and looking even more attractive were three of Ryan's um, New Year's resolutions. So, um, Merry Christmas, Ryan. Um, on that note, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, give us open hearts today to hear about your glorious character and plans for your creation. Let us fully understand the magnitude and purposes of your plan in creating your church and body of believers. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak your truth to each of us today. In your Son's name, amen. So this is the last sermon in our series of Ephesians today. So I want to take some time to review this epistle and then conclude with what I think is a powerful, overarching message from Paul, revealing God's heart for his creation. So I was trawling the internet this week to find a good way to introduce this sermon, and I came across a story about a forester in Ireland called Liam Emery. A forester has all sorts of responsibilities. They can range from assessing the condition of a forest, planning on how to reforest, or even strategically clearing specific areas of a forest. Foresters are also responsible for creating biomass resources by seeding, planting, and pruning trees in his forest. I imagine that Liam Emery had spent most of his professional life intimately aware of the characteristics, health, and well-being of each tree in the patch of forest he was responsible for. For one of his projects back in 2005, he carefully worked on planting two species of fir alongside each other on an area of land measuring several thousand square feet. That must have been hundreds if not thousands of trees planted. I can't even imagine how much the amount of care it required over the years to plant, feed, prune, and care for each of those trees individually. He must have known every detail about every tree. I also imagine that a forester's work typically goes unnoticed and its complexity largely underestimated. And that was exactly the case with Liam's project until something happened 11 years later. A particularly dry fall season made the two types of fir trees sharply contrast with each other in color. Every single one of those trees had its own purpose in Liam's work, a beautiful Celtic cross-shaped section of the forest. 
The effort, time, and patient care of each tree in this plan was not a surprise to those who knew him because they also understood the bigger picture. A master plan that had taken 11 years to be recognized and enjoyed. This is exactly how I want to wrap up our study of Ephesians today. We've spent a number of weeks peeling away at the details of many verses in the six chapters of this letter. A lot of truth, wisdom, and guidance that Paul has included. But I don't want us to miss seeing the forest for the trees. This letter reveals God's master plan for his creation, and he wants us to know that we have each been created, nurtured, and even pruned when needed in order to walk victoriously in the calling we have been called to. So let's take a look at what we've studied so far. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're introduced to God's plan for our redemption. Verses 7 to 8 say, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Through God's grace alone, we have been redeemed. Our sins are wiped clean by His blood, and we can once again be in relationship with Him. In chapter 2, Paul introduces us to reconciliation. Verses 13 to 16 write, But now in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus' death on the cross reconciled the chosen Jewish people with everyone else. Centuries-long animosity between Jews and Gentiles was now rendered null and void through Christ's sacrifice. As Jesus made his church consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, we have also been reconciled to God as the one body, and there is no more hostility between believers. In chapter 3, Paul reveals to us the mystery of the church. Verse 6 says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Throughout Jewish history, the Jews had been God's chosen people for His purposes and glorification, but now God's eternal plan has been revealed through Jesus Christ. All people who know and believe the gospel are members of God's family. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and established us as God's adopted sons and daughters. There is no division between any people who believe. Jesus has built for himself an all-encompassing and diverse church under his leadership. Chapter 4, Paul talks about the unity and growth of the church. Verses 1 to 4 say, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. He then continues in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Every single one of us has been called to be an active part of the body of Christ. We are called to have the objective of maintaining unity within our global and local churches. There is only one body of Christ, and it cannot function as God intended unless we are each intentionally fighting to maintain peace. 
We must bring our talents, skills, and resources to our community so that we can mature, grow, and thrive as God intended. In chapter 5, we are called to imitate Christ. Verse 1 writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how do we practically maintain unity within the church? In every circumstance, submit to one another. Husbands and wives, children and parents, those in authority and those under authority. This is not submission in weakness, but submission in joy that we are humbly reflecting Jesus' love in our relationships within the body of Christ, despite often difficult circumstances. Finally, in chapter 6, Paul talks about Christ's victory. Verses 10 to 14 write, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. As believers, we are in a cosmic spiritual battle. We cannot bury our heads in the sand on this. The cost is too high. But the good news is that we already know the outcome of this battle. Jesus already claimed victory 2,000 years ago by defeating death once and for all. So what is our role in this battle? We are commanded by Paul to stand firm. Our call is to resist the schemes of the devil, schemes devised to undermine our faith, undermine the church's unity, and disturb our peace. But we do not have to win this battle. It's God's, not ours. We must obediently stand firm in our faith with the armor and weapons God has given us for protection. If we have faith, we are standing with God and our victory is guaranteed. So there you have it. That's the details of Ephesians summarized for you. Redeemed, reconciled, the mystery of the church revealed, unity and growth in the church, imitating Christ and Christ's victory. If each of these chapters is a tree in our analogy, I want to zoom out and take a look at the forest these trees make up when considered all together. Ephesians is essentially about God's master plan for his creation being revealed to us in chapters 1 to 3. And then in chapters 4 to 6, we learn about our call to respond to this revelation in a way that glorifies and pleases him. So three points to help us today. Chosen by God, united through Christ, and his pleasure in our response. First point, chosen by God. When it comes to love, everything inside us wants to love those that will love us back. There is nothing inherently wrong with this, but we have to concede that the root of that love is a desire and longing for reciprocation. Whether it's a love of spouse, friend, or parent, reciprocal love is expected and longed for. If we don't get that reciprocity, our relationships tend to become strained or even break down. Think about how hard it is to love, like, or even be in the same room as someone who has no interest in your well-being or has even threatened that well-being with his words or actions. It's excruciatingly difficult and uncomfortable. Yet that is exactly how God loves us. Genesis 2, 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God, who has been in an eternal state of absolute satisfaction in the Trinity, decided to make man. He chose to create us purely for his delight and glory. He then gave man a perfect place to live, with only a single command as his restriction. Not to make man suffer, but to give him the opportunity to choose to have fellowship with God. He gave man everything, but man rejected God and corrupted his image. He disobeyed, and the implications of that disobedience on Adam and Eve is well known, as well as how that original sin was passed on to the entire human race. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet this is not the end of the story. God had a master plan. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you see what God has planned for his people? Before he even created the world, he chose those who believe to be holy and blameless before him. He planned for us, broken, unloving, ungracious, sinful men and women, to eventually stand before him, holy and absolutely blameless. He knew that we, should, that we would reject him, yet he planned for that rejection to guarantee us eternity with him. Eternity not just as acquaintances, but as his sons and daughters. In Ephesians, Paul reveals the glorious objective of God's master plan. Chapter 1, verse 9, he writes, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has chosen to unite us and his entire creation with himself. And the way he has provided for that to come about is through the ultimate sacrifice that only the one whose very essence is love could make. The sacrifice and rejection of his own son. To redeem us, bring us back to life, and reconcile us with the Father for eternity. Why would he do that? Because the way God loves is not how we love. God is love. And so we receive that love unconditionally and without deserving it. He cannot love us in any other way. This is great news for us. Bob Deffenbaugh writes, The gospel is the good news that God is the all-satisfying end of all our longings, and that even though he does not need us and is in fact estranged from us because of our God-belittling sins, he has in the great love with which he loved us made a way for sinners to drink at the river of his delights through Jesus Christ. He then continues, and we will not be enthralled by this good news unless we feel that he was not obliged to do this. He was not coerced or constrained by our value. He is the center of the gospel. Friends, God, by his glorious grace, chose us for eternal life with him, and he sent his son to the depths of hell to defeat the enemy so that his master plan could come to life. He was not obliged to. He chose us not because we are lovable, but because he is love. And his love makes us lovely. In his final greetings to the Ephesians, Paul writes, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's grasp the implications of God's grace and strive to love Jesus with an incorruptible love. Point number two today, united through Christ. 
So we've established that God has a master plan for uniting all his creation with him. We also know that his plan is to do this through his son, Jesus Christ. But how is Jesus going to accomplish this? What does it look like to be united in Christ? The answer to these questions is weaved throughout the Bible. Christ has established his church as the only mechanism through which creation can ultimately be united with God. Christ is the unifier of creation by bringing those that were far from God near to him. Jesus' sacrificial blood brought all Gentiles into God's family and made the covenants of God's promise available to all. So now all believers are part of a single body, the church. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes to the Gentile believers of Ephesus. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Imagine if you are a Gentile bondservant in the church at the time of listening to the message in this letter. You are at the bottom rung of society and you are not Jewish. As far as the Jewish culture around you is concerned, you are excluded from being part of God's plans for his creation. Then you hear this mind-blowing message that through your faith in Jesus Christ, you have indescribable worth in God's eyes. Your identity is not found in the opinions of other people or by the nationality you happen to be born into. You have a place in God's family secured because Jesus took on your sin by dying and coming back to life and so breaking down all those barriers between you and God. That must have been a life-changing truth to hear and it should be for us too. To be united to Christ is what it means to be saved. To be united to Christ is also what it means to be the church. And the church is the body and bride of Christ. Paul confirms this in chapter 5. He writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what is the purpose of the church? Why does God want it? Unite creation through Jesus' heading of the body of believers. It is for his glory. Tim Keller explains, What is the glory of God? It is at least the combined magnitude of all God's attributes and qualities put together. We were chosen individually and as a body of believers to gloriously put this character of God's on display to his creation. In 1 Corinthians, we are commanded, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Similarly, in Matthew 5, Jesus tells his disciples, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. God has united all believers under Christ's headship for the express purpose of reflecting his beautiful character to all who don't know him and to those who reject him. Ephesians 3.10 summarizes this well. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As we fully grasp God's plan for our church, the question we then need to consider is, what is our role in all this? How do we live as a Christian community in a way that allows God to be glorified as he deserves to be? So our last point for today, his pleasure in our response. 
The church is the body of Christ, and the unity of believers within church communities, both global and local, is the way God is made known to the world. But this doesn't happen automatically. In a dark and broken world, where every day there seems to be a new issue to be divided on, maintaining unity is hard work. This is not a nice-to-have element of our Christian communities. God has laid the foundations to make unity possible, and now we are called to do everything in our power to be at peace with each other. The Bible is clear that God made us for relationship, relationship with Him and with each other. From the very start of creation, God was intentional about this. In Genesis 2.18, He writes, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God discerned that it was not good for man to be alone. God, who has eternally been in the perfect relationship in the Trinity, made us in His image, and He knew that we would be better, stronger, and more faithful in community. Jesus modeled this well for us. Throughout His adult life, He was rarely alone for very long. In fact, one of the first things He did as He began His ministry was to gather a group of close friends around Him. His ministry would have been very difficult without those 12 disciples doing life with him, struggling with him, and rejoicing with him. One of the only times recorded in the Bible showing Jesus alone for a long period of time is just after his baptism. Matthew records, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command those stones to become loaves of bread. As soon as Jesus finds himself alone, the enemy starts attacking, tempting him into sin, trying to undermine the sovereignty of God and filling Jesus' ears with lies. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been alone and let your mind wander, finding yourself filled with doubts, questions, negative thoughts, resentment, or wishful thinking? This list could go on and on. When we are alone, we are much more vulnerable. Of course, Jesus is God and he was able to resist the attacks, but we are much less resilient. God knew this, so he created us to be in community. One pastor writes, Jesus did not come to give you a private relationship with himself. It's a personal relationship, but it's not private. I challenge you to think about what this quote means to you. Do you have faith but find yourself wanting to be left alone to relate to God as you wish? Do you actively avoid community opportunities at church, small groups, or other opportunities for, for fellowship? Jesus knew he needed strong, faithful people around him if he was going to reflect God's life-saving truth to the world. Which believers are you doing life with? Who loves you and encourages you through your hardships and rejoices with you in your happiness and success? If Jesus needed community, then surely we do too. As we have seen so far, it is not an option, but a command if we are to project God's glory as we are called to do. Why is community so hard though? Because we are naturally sinners, rebels, and proud. We are distracted by the world around us. We want to control things that only God should control. In one way or another, we fail and inevitably end up feeling dissatisfied and disappointed. If left to our own devices, we become cynical, anxious, depressed, and self-serving. We end up being tempted by the world's lies. 
But Paul is very clear on how to overcome our brokenness. In chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, he is very prescriptive of how we are to live in order to be at peace with each other. Firstly, he urges us to bear with one another in love. He doesn't say be in love with each other and feel great about it all the time. Bearing with one another does not always look and feel warm and cozy. But if prioritizing being at peace is the driver behind our relationships, we love others despite their quirks, their flaws, and their addictions. And they are also called to love us in the same way. Secondly, he speaks about encouragement. Lifting our brothers and sisters up so that we can grow together in maturity in our faith. Jesus is often referred to as the Word of God, and the Bible is clear on the power of the Word. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our words are also powerful when they reflect Christ. Community involves using the power of our words to speak truth into each other's lives for the purpose of encouragement. Hearing truth blocks out the lies and deceit that fight for our attention. Without community, we are left vulnerable to being influenced, shaped, and defined by things other than God. Paul tells the Ephesians, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Receiving encouraging words is a reminder of God's grace in a believer's life. As you lift up your brothers and sisters, you are pouring God's life-giving truth into their situations, and they are washed by that free grace God is always offering us. A large part of Paul's focus in the, in the later chapters of Ephesians is, is on submission. He calls us to treat everyone the same way that we would treat Christ. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about the heart of obedience, and this is a core element in successfully being at peace in community. As we seek to serve others humbly for Jesus' sake, regardless of whether they have earned it or deserve it, God's character gets put on display for all to see. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You may not ever have to physically lay down your life for your friends, but that is the highest calling that you are called to. Relate to your brothers and sisters in this way and watch God's kingdom grow exponentially around you. Everything inside us wants to disassociate from each other. We see differences as disagreement, and in turn, disagreement wants to make us disengage. It is a part of our brokenness, but we are called to be united no matter how difficult. God's master plan is for a diverse church, for Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters, men and women from every nation of the earth. This is what pleases him. Through Christ, he's accomplishing this plan. Our role is to align with it in loving obedience.